This is a relay project. Seriously starts now. Here's Sapria and Ryan. Hey, hey, it's Wednesday, November 9th, and you're listening to Seriously with Sapria and Ryan. I am Sapria Devetti in Toronto. Ryan Jesperson in Edmonton. It's nice to see you again, my friend. Always good to see you, Ryan. And some uh, big news, I guess, from your side of the country. Your premier now officially has a seat. Yeah, she she uh, she needed a seat in the legislature to effectively lead the United Conservative Party. And Danielle Smith got that uh, Tuesday night, winning a by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat. Not the margin of victory that some may have suspected, Sapri, about 54.5%, at least with the polls that are reporting the numbers we're looking at right now. But I don't think anybody cares about the scoreboard. If you're on Danielle Smith's team, you wanted to make sure that she was in the legislature, and she is. She says this marks the new beginning, officially, of her tenure as premier. Of course, it's full campaign mode, an election coming up in May of next year. And so now she'll be there just in time for the uh, session, which will be sitting uh, coming up a little bit later on this month. So I'm the first one to say a win is a win, right? Because it is. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about that margin of victory? Because I think that does seem to matter, at least when we're setting this up for uh, what to expect in May. No. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And a lot of people were, were wondering and, and, and a win is a win. Yes, for sure. But people wanted to see what would Danielle Smith do numbers wise in this by-election, Brooks Medicine Hat, it's in the southern part of the province, uh, and this is a, a conservative stronghold. The, the United Conservatives, the progressive conservatives before them have won this this riding, Supriya, almost as a guarantee, though they'd never put it that way. But people expected to see 70% plus. So people might be reading into, maybe you and I might be reading into 54.5%. What's particularly interesting here to me there is a debate whether or not Alberta is officially a two-party province. Is it the United Conservative Party versus Rachel Notley's NDP, or could the Alberta Party be a player? And here's uh, the by-election where we were supposed to find out. Barry Morishita, for everybody across Canada that's not familiar with the name or not familiar with the Alberta Party, uh, Barry Morishita, the former president of the Alberta municipalities. These are the, the rural and urban centers basically outside Calgary and Edmonton. He's the former mayor of Brooks. This by-election was happening in, in his home turf, so to speak. He's the leader of the Alberta Party. Um, Sabria, not only did he did he lose the by-election, uh, but he, he didn't finish second. He finished third behind the NDP candidate, Gwendolyn Dirk. And I think that that says a lot about the future of the Alberta Party, and it says a lot about the future of Alberta politics. It looks like it's going to be the United Conservatives versus the NDP fighting it out uh, one-on-one next provincial election in May of 2023. A couple of uh, headlines from this side of the country. Uh, Folks may be aware that Ontario has sort of avoided some of that uh, strike strife um, insofar as QP. Uh, the union that was representing those education workers and the provincial government are going back to the uh, you know negotiating table. The Quebec Appeals Court is going to hear arguments all this week uh, regarding Bill 21, which of course is that Quebec legislation that bars 
folks that are in a uh, position of authority um, from wearing any religious garb while on the job. So that impacts, you know, cops, judges, teachers, um, et cetera. Uh, and Minister Lametti, the federal justice minister, has confirmed that if it goes to the Supreme Court after this, then the feds will intervene, which is pretty, you know, uh, significant uh, development there. Um, the prime minister, uh, this was announced yesterday, is also going to be appearing on uh, a spinoff of Canada's drag race. Mm. And, you know, heads were already exploding all over my feed um, because of that. I mean, what's your take? Uh, I you mean, have one. Uh, it's OK to say you don't have one. I yeah, mean. no, I mean, I, I guess the criticism here, you know, was that, you know, people don't believe that the prime minister should be lending his his star power or his celebrity uh, to a reality TV show. Is that it? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that deep down inside, let's be honest, uh, let's call it how it is. I think a lot of the critics probably have a problem with people in drag, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, I don't think it has much to do with the fact that it's a reality show. I think that it probably has something to do with the association with RuPaul and the fact that, that you know, some of the, these these uh, steadfast, you know, positions that people are taking would preclude them from supporting anything to do with drag, but they just know that they can't quite say it out loud. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, I would probably agree with that. And I think it's also worth noting, of course, that, um, you know, drag shows in particular have been shut down by bigots, um, both here and in the U.S., right? So I would have to guess that filming of this likely occurred months ago, which means that the prime minister went on the show um, kind of at the height of all this right wing nuttery uh, and bigotry um, over drag shows. So, you know, I think it's I think symbolism and representation is important and it matters. Um, if you are going to criticize the the prime minister and the federal liberals for this, I think probably going at them for not being uh, you know, not being as good as they could be on LGBTQ rights is probably a better way to come at this. And mm-hmm. if you're going to lob criticism other than being like, oh, my God, he's he's appearing on a drag show. Yeah, but you're, being, you're, you're being strategic. You're, you're thinking two steps ahead. You're you actually have a plan here uh, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't describe the critics, right? The critics just have something new to latch on. And I'm not being a Trudeau apologist here. I'm just saying the specific criticism around this about being on Canada's drag show, it seems to be coming from the same people that are still obsessed over the socks and the hair and that sort of a thing. It seems to be kind of the pithy or the shallow end of the pool when it comes to that kind of thing. Hey, I'm going to be speaking with Zipporah Berman, uh, the environmental activist, right after I talk to you today. She's going to be giving us a shout from Egypt. She's at COP27. A lot of people are, of course, global players that are involved in, in work around the environment and sustainability and public policy and the like. Are you optimistic when something like COP27 comes around or, or, or do you kind of sneer like maybe a little bit like you are right now? Oh, Ryan, you already know I'm not optimistic when it comes to COP. Um, I'm not. <laughs> I mean, look, I think I think multilateral institutions matter. I think these meetings matter, but it, it's a little bit of a farce. Um you know, if we keep coming away from these things and not making any real progress on climate change. And I mean, you know, Coca-Cola is a major sponsor of this year's summit. They're like the biggest plastic polluters in the world last year. Like this mm. whole thing just seems like is steeped in hypocrisy and seems like a, a photo op for a lot of, you know, uh, the richer countries yeah. that go to it. Um, so I don't know. Is Coca-Cola the biggest plastics polluter or are Coca-Cola drinkers? the biggest plastics polluters like is Tim Hortons Mm. really responsible for litter in Canada or are Tim Hortons customers responsible for it? Okay. So 
Yeah, that's a good point. But I mean, in Coca-Cola, they could shift their packaging to do some to be sure. something a little bit more environmental friendly yeah. if they wanted to go about One it. One of those right? things where it's like made out of what it, the, the stuff that disintegrates into fish food. You yeah. know, that might be a good step. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like maybe it's good to see the big polluters involved in stuff like this because they're maybe they're they're paying their penance in a way. I don't know. Maybe we could we could get like the next cop sponsored by big oil or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, and the, well. The, the welcome receptions, they always have the best parties. Big Oil always has the best parties. <laughs> I grew up in Calgary. I've been to all the stampede stuff, you know. Hey, here, here's a headline that I know people were paying attention to over the past couple of weeks, and that's the one TD Economics releasing that report about the job vacancy gap in Canada, right? The gist of it is that we're still seeing huge numbers of job vacancies across the country. Of course, for employers, this means upward wage pressure, right? Not great for employers, uh, especially nonprofits and associations, Priya. Yeah, definitely not great. Suboptimal, however you want to qualify it. But, you know, basically when employers do need to pay more to be able to retain and attract talent, they need to be able to offset that cost somehow. And would you believe me if I told you that one way to actually offset those costs is actually through your training program. And that's where we know training comes in because they can help you create amazing courses and monetize them to become a high performing revenue stream. They helped one association gain an extra $3 million in revenue growth while completely transforming their training program. Yeah. Plus they're not just an LMS or e-commerce program, right? They can do everything from instructional design to course distribution, learner support. So everything's handled for you. Uh, plus they really invest in their partner's success. You can let We Know Training partner with you uh, to create a training program that's impactful within your industry, powerful and profitable. You can learn more right now about We Know Training at weknowtraining.ca. The lead. Woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. So that is uh, Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, uh, where woke goes to die, Ryan. Still um, the governor of Florida yeah. uh, with, with, with pretty strong support. Out of those midterm elections, what, what do you read into it? I mean, people of Florida have spoken. Yeah, I mean, no kidding, right? Um, so, I mean, I have a couple of key lines sort of takeaways here. Um, there wasn't any red wave, right, that was predicted as many in the media. And given just the fact that, you know, Biden is personally quite unpopular, um, the economy isn't doing great, right, with, with uh, inflation. And, you know, just the way historical precedent tends to work with this sort of thing, it, it wasn't a very good night um, for the GOP, though worth mentioning that it does look like they will take control of the House. Um, and it's also, of course, worth mentioning that they likely wouldn't have been able to take back control of the House or, you know, do as well as they did without the gerrymandering that that they have done um, in the last little bit. Um, the other main takeaway for myself was abortion rights had a great night. So California, Vermont and Michigan all had measures uh, to enshrine abortion rights within their state constitutions, and they all passed. While on the other side, Montana and Kentucky, which are, you know, arguably traditionally pretty red states, had measures that would have severely restricted abortion, and those were outright rejected. Um, so for all the talk of like nobody cares about Roe v. Wade that we heard from a lot of male pundits uh, in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, um, they seem to have been quite wrong, um, you know, with a capital W. Yeah. And Dr. Oz isn't a senator. 
So yeah, yeah, know, there's that. Yeah, that's true. Maryland yeah. also voted uh, to legalize weed. So good for Maryland. Good for Maryland. Um, yeah. Uh, Marjorie thing- Taylor Greene, though, it continues to trend upward more and more power for uh, is she going to be president one day? Oh, my gosh. No, but on a serious <laughs> question, is she going to be president? Do you think? She's, yeah, she she's could become be. a power I mean, broker. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, man. Yeah, she really could be. That's sorry. That's I didn't a scary mean to. Thought. You know, I, no, I, I, but I could have stayed on Doctor Oz, or we could talk Herschel Walker. But I, I, I just thought that that no, one, it's a good point. Yeah, her her rise to stardom within the Republican Party, uh, considering sort of everything that 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 she stands for. I mean, she's you know she's one of those players. We see them around the world. Uh, every party has them. Uh, in particular, every conservative party seems to have them as that dynamic player that, that endeavors to just take it to the to, to turbo levels with regards to conviction on certain issues. And I'm curious to see what she's going to do over the next two or four years. Yeah, me too. Um, another sort of developing or I guess developed storyline from last night is the fact that, you know, Trump really seems to have lost uh, his luster here, um, that a lot of the Trump backed candidates that were on the nuttier side of the spectrum um, lost their races. And uh, a lot of prominent conservatives in the in the U.S. Um, have come out basically blaming him um, for the way that the Republicans fared uh, last night. And this, you know, very obviously, I think, sets up the stage for DeSantis v. Trump in 2024. There was a lot of buzz around DeSantis even prior to this. Right. Um, And it's worth noting, uh, you know, we had a conversation on Friday on Real Talk, Ryan, about ageism and whether it's ageism to point out how old Biden is. Spoiler alert, it's not. It's not. Um, but one thing that DeSantis really has going for him is that I think he's like 44 mm-hmm. or 45. So, you know, young guy, um, 32-ish years younger than than Trump. Like, that's significant um, when you're thinking about, you know, how you want uh, four years of a presidency to sort of roll out. And I think he's also a lot more palatable um, to people than Trump is. And so he can do a lot of the Trumpy stuff without the same sort of visceral that trump gets yeah i think you're right doesn't doesn't sort of have that there's not that like brand association in the negative sense when when you think of trump uh i think that there's a lot of people that would support a republican party regardless right and uh you look at putting trump on the ballot it just seems to me to be uh it's just that just that that tiny little bit and i'm being facetious but just that tiny little bit too vulnerable images of january 6th and the insurrection i can just see the the political attack ads it's desantis just has that that tiny little bit of a buffer zone where where he can be just a little bit more palatable to the middle of the road republican voter or to the undecided republican voter trump will have his diehard supporters Obviously, everybody knows that, but I think in an election that's going to be hotly contested, the the baggage that he might come with, I don't know. It just strikes me. I don't doubt that he could win an election. I just think that he'd have a tougher road to get there than DeSantis would. Yeah, I mean, I I do I do also think that I think that's 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 really you know quite accurate. And I think the other thing is that uh, people tend to bristle at Trump's demeanor, comportment. Um, 
they it's not that they necessarily dislike a lot of his policies or dislike a lot of what he says. They would just prefer him to say it in a more polite or more palatable manner. And, you know, a guy like DeSantis, I think, even though he does despicable things like busing migrants to Martha's Vineyard without their consent or without really knowing where they were going, um, he manages to do it in a way that doesn't garner that same sort of uh, reaction um, that you're sort of alluding to. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting. But, you know, Trump's already said that he has a lot of dirt on DeSantis and that he has a lot of unflattering things that he could be saying about him. So if he gets if he feels as though he's up against the ropes, I'll be very curious to see what he starts saying in the next little bit. And it doesn't even have to have substance. It doesn't even no. have to have anything to do with politics. I mean, you remember poor Ted Cruz. Poor, yeah. poor Ted Cruz. Trump's talking about how ugly his wife is. And how his dad killed JFK. <laughs> like, like, it's, <laughs> like it's not even, like if you're Ron DeSantis, you're kind of like, what is coming next? And by the way, wow, is the word woke ever getting weaponized politically? Also, there's this. Across this country, uh, there have been shortages of medications required for pain relief by small infants and babies. Uh, Children's uh, Tylenol, uh, ibuprofen, and others are necessary to uh, relieve the often intense pain that uh, young children feel during sickness, teething, uh, or other uh, c conditions. Uh, and it has been uh, come to be expected that you can go to a, a local drugstore and get these medications. Unfortunately, in Canada, that has not been the case. So that was uh, Pierre Polyev on the floor of the House uh, a week and a bit ago, um, you know, making the case that uh, we should be doing something about the shortage of fever and pain meds for kids. And, you know, it's worth noting that this is something that is within provincial, you know, purview responsibility. They have a much better uh, view into uh, when those shortages are coming up because they're the ones that are in direct contact with manufacturers and the like. But you know, it doesn't really matter anymore because if you're a parent and you're going from pharmacy to pharmacy, um, seeing a bunch of empty store shelves, um, you don't really give a fuck whose uh, responsibility or purview it is. All you want is for your kid who is, you know, in pain or has a fever to have a little bit of relief. And this is all coming, of course, on the backdrop of a pretty bad RSV and flu season, right? Like kids right now are getting hit with viruses quite hard. Um, and nobody seems to be taking the concerns of parents seriously, nor do people really seem to be taking the concerns of pediatric hospital staff who are like, hey, there is uh, a real issue here. Like you had the chief of staff of CHEO, which is uh, a, a kid's hospital um, in, in Ottawa. And, the, you know, she's basically saying like something needs to be done. We imploring people to wear masks. Nobody really cares. There's now also a shortage of amoxicillin, which is a very, you know, basic common antibiotic that is given to kids who have like things like ear infections. Um, and like nothing's being done. I don't know. I just feel like parents are just screaming into the void right now. Well, the, and, and the, these empty store shelves and the kids, you know, we were we were on a family vacation uh, a couple of weekends ago. We've got an infant, right? We've got a four month yeah. old baby and uh, and, he, and he was all stuffed up and he was experiencing some issues when you need the infant meds. Right. You're looking for pretty specific stuff. 
I guess it's it's not so much like the '70s Supria, where you hit him up with like a little bit of rum on the soother and <laughs> kind of like calm him down. So we were looking for the legit stuff and empty store shelves in the pharmacy we visited. I said, "What's the deal?" Because it was kind of the second place we'd touched down on. He said, "The minute we get anything, it's gone." I said, "Could you recommend anywhere else in town that might have it?" He goes, "Well, good luck." And certainly, I was looking for good luck. Didn't find any. Wasn't anywhere. Does anybody actually understand what's going on here or what the issue is? Or where we can't just get our American neighbors to ship a bunch up. I mean, I know there's actual regulatory stuff, and I know there's reasons why people aren't. But it just strikes me as a problem that could be solved. And, and I don't understand. I don't blame people for being pretty frustrated right now. Mostly parents, obviously. Yeah. So everything I've read about it points to it being like a bit of a multifactorial issue. That it's not just one thing that we can really blame this on, right? I mean, for one, a lot of these manufacturers don't necessarily keep a huge reserve for countries uh, like Canada, um, you know, just because of our population um, and what have you. And then there's also, um, I've, you know, read quite a bit about parents, um, just like a supply and demand issue that because kids are getting more sick, that there's been a bit of a, a run on on some of these pharmacies, um, some suggestion that parents are maybe taking um, a little bit more than they should per visit. Um, I, I don't, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. Do you buy things. that? I don't buy yeah, and that. I don't, I don't think that don't. there's parents that are buying like 80 vials of Tylenol yeah. for kids. I don't think that's yeah. the problem. I mean, I don't think so either, but I mean, basically every parent I know of young kids has either had family, um, ship them, uh, you know, Tylenol, ibuprofen, whatever. Um, I am myself included. My sister did it for me from New Jersey, um, or are just, you know, going down to the border themselves, um, mm. to get it. And I don't know, it's not a place where you want to be. And, you know, compounding all of this is the fact that I don't know if public health messaging has been great in, in terms of really prepping parents for the bad onslaught of flu season. Um, mm. Like, I, I don't know about Alberta, but Ontario certainly didn't have a big campaign to get vaccinated for the flu. Um, and I, kids are getting hit very hard with the flu and they're ending up in hospital. And I think people should be made aware that you know, there's a vaccine that can cut your hospitalization and cut the serious outcomes of this. And yet we're not really hearing that. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids absent from school, too. Um, you know, I'm looking at numbers that are just a couple of days old right now in, in our neck of the woods, in our hometown of Edmonton, uh, Edmonton Public Schools announcing that, that uh, almost 14 percent of kids were absent off sick on Monday. That That represents like you know, 13,900 students. That's, that's a pretty significant number and that's trending up, right? It was like four and a half percent last yeah. Monday. Um, so this is something that's pretty serious. I haven't seen any, I mean, you know, you're in Ontario, I'm in Alberta, so maybe a little bit different, uh, but I don't think so based on what you're saying. I haven't seen any campaigns really. I mean, may maybe there's something going on around flu shop, but it's not, it's not what everybody's talking about. Do you think, is there like an exhaustion factor at play? Do you think there's like a, when it comes to public messaging, you think, I don't know, our health authorities, I mean, are, are people messaged out when it comes to getting shots? I don't know. I mean, well, we don't know because we haven't even tried. So it's like public health and government have sort of like abdicated their responsibility here. And at least in Ontario, I don't know what the case is in Alberta, but Ontario actually ordered fewer flu doses this year um, mm. that, for the vaccine than they did in the last two previous years, which is, I don't know, kind of messed up, given the fact that we knew from the southern hemisphere that we were going to be hit pretty hard with the flu. And we should have uh, probably doubled up, given that hospital capacity is what it is. Um, and we didn't. So it just seems like a really um, myopic thing to have done. And now we're dealing with the repercussions of it. Really quickly, uh, COVID vaccinations, too, for kids. 
we're taking a look at the numbers. T- to me, I'm surprised they're as low as they are. Are you? I mean, did did everybody no. just kind of like you're not? I don't know. Did everyone get over the hump and just <laughs> figure that we're past it? Is that it? I don't know. I mean, the it, numbers are re- single digits. Yeah. So I, yeah, it's worth noting that like one percent of kids have two doses across the country. One percent. Like. Well, yeah. And 6.5% of kids have one dose. So or two, yeah. I, I, I don't know, like maybe it was throwing in the towel. I think the messaging here again was really wrong because I mean, for the most part, uh, the messaging around kids was it's no big deal. If they get it, they'll get over it. And like, yeah, they do tend to fare better, of course, than like the elderly and the frail. Right. Um, but, uh, y- you know, if you speak to pediatric uh, ID specialists that are, you know, on the ground, um, they're pointing to the fact that with Omicron anyway, um, kids that do end up in hospital don't always have that underlying condition that, uh, you know, in previous waves um, were pointed to as like being a, a, a main factor in, in, in kid hospitalizations. And I don't know, it's like we've just really failed our kids again and again and again. Seriously? Because, like, I I agree with your basic premise, Mercedes. I think that things are really challenging for Canadian families. And I think Canadian families are looking really closely at all of their expenses. I personally, as a mother and wife, look carefully at my credit card bill once a month. And last Sunday, I said to the kids, you're older now, you don't want to watch Disney anymore let's cut that Disney Plus subscription. So we cut it. It's only $13.99 a month that we're saving, but every little bit helps. And I think every mother in Canada is doing that right now. And I wanna say to all of those mothers, I believe that I need to take exactly the same approach with the federal government's finances. So Deputy Prime Minister, Finance Minister, Christian Freeland figures that Canadians just need to cancel their Disney Plus and everything's going to be fine. Now, I, I'm, I, I, I'm being opportunistic here and I'm pouncing and I'm misrepresenting or twisting what she's saying. Right. Am I? Aren't I? Well, look, I think it was a silly thing to have said, but I don't think I think it's silly for the reasons that a lot of other people think it's silly in the way that it's being positioned. So I think you are right. I mean, I think uh, the framing of this was that she was suggesting that in order for families to be able to cut back during these, um, you know, hard economic times that they should be looking at their credit card statements and cutting things like Disney Plus. Um, But what she was actually responding to there and her answer in full, um, if you didn't just watch the tidbits that were posted to Twitter and other social media sites, is that she was suggesting that's what the government should be doing is going basically through their, you know, line by line, like you would a credit card statement and cutting out things that are superfluous now, um, like a Disney plus whatever the government equivalent of that would be maybe landlines, I don't know, Um, but something to that effect. And so I think it's silly because somebody like Christopher Freeland in another iteration of, you know, a West Block interview on Global News or Question Period or whatever would have likely denigrated um, any conservative for suggesting that a household budget and a federal budget um, have, you know, analogous sort of uh, measures, because what you tend to hear from people like Minister Freeland are, those are completely different things. And anybody who treats them the same 
um, you know, aren't really don't really understand the the the, the gravity of the the of a federal budget. Um, mm. But that's clearly what she's doing now. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, part of me because we're in the talk business and and we're in the uh, the information slash entertainment or info. We're in the takes business. economy, Ryan. We, That's what we are. We, we're so in the we, takes economy. Yeah, we we love this stuff, and it's <laughs> yeah. you know it's the gift that keeps on giving. But but every once in a while, I wonder: Are we trying to make too much of this? Are people trying to make too much of this? And and it sort of feels like we are. I put myself in in any politician's shoes when asked to come up with a a metaphor or a, a simile or an anecdote or something. And, and at the time you, you go in, you know, that feeling where you think someone's behind you, you're sure someone's behind you, your back starts to, you kind of get the heebie jeebies and you almost feel like you see it coming. I feel like she would have seen it coming because people are going to pounce on it and jump on it. And, and I think she was just, I've seen two different angles on this. Some have said that she's just, you know, someone wrote into our show and real talk and said, well, she's just, she's still that gal from Fairview, Alberta. She's just the farm gal that she probably did have that conversation with her family. She's just trying to reach people where they're at. And then the flip side criticism on the same comment is that she hasn't talked to any real people about budgets and real life and managing inflation and rising costs. And, and it just went to show that when a politician starts to talk about themselves as opposed to talking about voters or the electorate, yeah. uh, then they've, they've missed the mark. And uh, these are both takes on the same comment. So I, I guess it probably uh, factors in how you feel about Minister Freeland or how you feel about the federal liberals in the first place, right? If you're going to jump to her defense and, 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 and almost justify the comment, it's probably because you support the party or her. And if you're going to pile on, it maybe has something to do with the fact that you have existing feelings about how this government's doing. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily think the comment was was offensive. Uh, I do think that it came across as a little bit dismissive. Yeah, and I, if nothing else, I mean, something you touched on there, I think is really important that the liberals, particularly liberals like Freeland or others that do have a very high profile, right, um, should be a little bit better at not saying things that they know will get clipped, um, either out of context or not give the full clip because, uh, that tends to happen to them quite a bit, and their you know their their critics are quite successful um, at promoting clips like that. So if nothing else, just be careful. We love when you let us know what you think about what you're hearing here on the show. You can connect with us on Instagram. You can hit us up on Twitter, and of course, you can check out our website seriouslypod.com. Talk next week, Ryan. We'll see you next Wednesday. Seriously is hosted by Supriya Dwivedi and Ryan Jesperson. Technical producer, John Hicks. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Lawrence Dorlego. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Voiceover by me, Tangi. Seriously is a relay project. For more, check out seriouslypod.com. 